Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Program Director of the Integrative Medicine Program here at GW. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we're going to delve into the much-anticipated report from the Lancet Commission on Obesity with Bill Dietz, MD, PhD, co-chair of the commission. A nationally renowned expert in obesity, nutrition, and physical activity, Dr. Dietz is the director and chair of the Sumner M. Redstone Global Center for Prevention and Wellness at GW's Milken Institute School of Public Health. Dr. Dietz is also a member of the National Academy of Medicine and director of the Stop Obesity Alliance here at GW. Prior to GW, he was the director of the Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Obesity at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Dr. Dietz. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. The Commission on Obesity is a partnership with the prestigious medical journal, The Lancet, the World Obesity Federation, the University of Auckland, and GW. What brought this international group together at this time, and what are you hoping to accomplish with this report? The Lancet had two series on obesity uh, published several years apart, and as they often do with uh, topics of major interest, they established a commission, and the commission was on obesity. We thought that our scope should be beyond just obesity and uh, focused on what we call the global syndemic. The global syndemic uh, is a series of three pandemics, uh, pandemics or widespread epidemics. And those pandemics are obesity, undernutrition, and we named climate change a pandemic given its scope and uh, adverse effects. The definition of a syndemic is that a syndemic is a series of pandemics that occur in the same time and place and are driven by social factors. In this case, the systems that we're concerned about are land use, transportation, and urban design, and the agricultural system. Each of these plays a role in driving the global syndemic. And just to give you a couple of examples, the transportation system, which relies on cars, uh, displaces physical transport, that is walking and biking, or public transport, which saves energy. So the use of cars generates greenhouse gases, which contribute to adverse weather events in the developing world. And I should mention that we think the syndemic disproportionately affects under underserved minorities and, and poor countries. Um, but the same factors which generate greenhouse gases, that is car use, are also contributors to obesity. We know that there's a direct relationship between car use and obesity. So relying on public transport, which increases physical activity, or physical transport, which increases physical activity, not only reduces greenhouse gases, but also promotes physical activity and therefore reduces obesity. Fascinating. Thank you for explaining that. Um, you, you already sort of alluded to this, and the report goes beyond what many typically consider as contributors to obesity, namely diet and physical activity. Um, and it includes urban planning, food systems, economics, and much more. How did you determine what to include in this report and the relative importance to obesity? Well, as, as I said, these, the, the global syndemic is driven by systems, and those systems, the most important systems that contribute to global warming uh, and obesity are urban design, transport, land use, and food systems. Uh, so that, for example, beef production is a major source of greenhouse gases. Agriculture alone generates 25% of greenhouse gases, and the majority of those gases come from cattle production. 
So cattle production displaces other crops because of the forage required for feeding cattle. Cattle generate a lot of methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. Uh, meat consumption contributes to ill health, both in terms of obesity and colon cancer. So that um, the addressing the whole issue of beef consumption or reducing beef consumption will have a decided impact on reduced agricultural generation of greenhouse gases. Reduced beef consumption will also be associated with reduced rates of obesity and uh, therefore re reductions in climate change as well. So it sounds like what you're hitting on here is things that really affect us globally and, and largely. It's not just about obesity. It's going much farther than that. And I guess that's from your public health perspective. Correct. So these pandemics, these three, uh, account for a huge proportion of the gross domestic product of both lower income countries and upper income countries. And it's estimated that, that the uh, climate change is likely to account for up to 15% of uh, gross domestic product of developing countries. Um, now, I said, I, I pointed out that these systems underpin the, the global syndemic, but underneath those are what we call deeper drivers. And among the deeper drivers are things like uh, the resistance to policy change that we see on the part of large corporations. And, and um, politically, we see that in, in terms of the United States, a withdrawal from the initiatives on climate change. And according to uh, the Post this morning, the, the uh, rate of greenhouse gases arose about 3% in the last uh, two years. So these, this is happening. And our hope is that by joining these areas, which were previously separated, that there was one constituency for undernutrition, another constituency for climate change, a third constituency for obesity, that bringing these together may lead to solutions that affect all three. And we call those triple-duty solutions uh, or triple-duty actions. Um, and understanding where these systems come together may allow us to uh, really begin to address these three issues simultaneously, uh, which is uh, certainly a, a, an economical use of, of resources. The, as I said before, policy inertia is a really important area, uh, both in terms of the resistance of industry and also the, the lack of political will generated from uh, the, the general public. That, and ultimately what we think is that this will need to become a social movement. And social movements historically have started at the local level and then moved up to the to the state level and ultimately federal and uh, and global. And I think we're just at the beginning of this. That um, there's certainly mobilization around climate change. Obesity has been a hot issue, although it's recently uh, declined. And undernutrition continues to affect large numbers of children throughout the world. So bringing together these previously diverse and, and separated coalitions may promise more change and, and, and change on all three of these issues simultaneously. Why do you think it, it took time for these three groups to come together? Well, they haven't come together yet. <clears throat> um, our hope is that, that naming the global syndemic and, and promoting this, this con concept will um, eventually break down those silos and allow these groups to begin to join, particularly as they identify common solutions. When did the Lancet Commission come to the conclusion that this was what needed to happen? 
early on. Um, so the Lancet Commission was impaneled about two years ago, and the, it consists of about 25 commissioners from around the world representing a variety of disciplines. And uh, early on in our really our first meeting, we began to think in much broader terms than just to focus on obesity. Um, obesity is certainly a major issue. It's increasing in developing countries and continues to increase here in the United States. In fact, no country has successfully reversed the trend uh, in obesity. But we realized that obesity was just part of a larger complex system and that that systems approach is what led us to think about climate change and uh, undernutrition and obesity as the global syndemic. I'm really glad that you mentioned the systems approach. I know with my students in integrative medicine, when I discuss obesity with them, one of the things I try to focus on is that this is a multifactorial disease that has multiple causes. And you can't just narrow in on one cause and think that you're going to have the solution, which also, by the way, is the opposite of integrative medicine, right? We're trying to look at all the causes and get to the root of the disease. Uh, But it seems like while maybe a practitioner can do that, can look at all the causes and work with their one patient, we've totally forgot that it's about our environment and the world that we live in. And so you're kind of taking an integrative medicine approach to the world, which I love. Um, We just need to get maybe more people on board is what Mm -hmm. it sounds like. Right. So a systems approach certainly applies to obesity because it's a complex interaction of individual susceptibility with an environment that promotes the disease. Um, but undernutrition is the same thing, and and so is climate change. That this is these systems, or these these pandemics, are driven by these systems, and these systems um, are malleable. That we need to change these systems, um, and it's certainly complex. And we're not. I don't pretend to to think that we have all the answers. Uh, but if this report galvanizes these previously diverse and separated constituencies, then we will have accomplished uh, the first part of our task. The second part of our task is getting people to begin to operate or recognize the the triple-duty solutions or triple-duty actions and act upon them. And that's where the political will comes in, uh, attributable to governance. And I I should also mention that culture plays a role. I mean, beef consumption is built into American society, and it's tough to turn that around. but the expect, our expectation or our hope is that recognizing that, that, that beef consumption is part of a broader problem uh, may begin to mobilize individuals and change uh, the cultural expectations. And getting people out of their cars. <laughs> exactly. Well, D.C. is an interesting city for that because we have good public transportation and it's a very walkable city. And many of the older cities fit that description. But there are many cities in which car people are absolutely dependent on cars. So I, before coming to GW, I was in Atlanta at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention where everything is car dependent. Uh, and some of my staff had uh, spent an hour and a half one way uh, on a car commute. And in fact, Atlanta was one of the first places where there was a study recognizing the association of obesity and car use. Oh, that makes perfect sense to me. I actually personally don't um, I don't use my car very much anymore. I take the train in and then I walk and I, I love it. Um, but previous to that, actually, I, I was doing a car commute and um, I, I personally gained 15 pounds in one year just from that. So anecdotal evidence, but it, I'm a, I am leave a very healthy lifestyle. So I feel like if it could happen to me, it can absolutely happen to anyone. The other factor that, that I think we have to recognize is that 
the system as it's currently set up perpetuates a car use and perpetuates the kind of agricultural system we have. And part of that is the enormous subsidies that we give to the, 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 production, the production of forage crops and, and gasoline, and the gasoline tax has not been raised. So as tools, as we think about what kind of tools we can use, tools like reducing or redirecting the subsidies for gas to public transport or redirecting the subsidies from uh, the current agricultural profile to more sustainable crops is an important strategy. A second important strategy is that we do not pay the true costs of these products, um, that because gas is subsidized, it's cheap, it perpetuates car use. Because the meat consumption is subsidized and the, the forage crops that, that uh, feed animals are, are subsidized, we're not playing, paying the true cost of beef. If we paid those true costs, consumption would likely decrease. Very interesting. Um, I don't know if you've looked at this, but I'm wondering if there's a difference between traditional um, agricultural production and some of the more um, what we're calling more sustainable biodynamic type agriculture production that we're trying in smaller scale and hoping that it will scale up. So one of the things that we point to in this report is uh, the history of, in, of indigenous populations and who lived a very sustainable lifestyle. And one of the things we quote in there is <clears throat> the decision-making on the part of the Iroquois Nation, which was the very progressive coalition of, of uh, Native Americans um, starting in up, upstate New York. And in fact, the, the U.S. Constitution was based on this confederacy, the Iroquois Confederacy. And their practice is to make decisions that affect the seventh generation, hence. So they're planning well in advance, and, and there's, uh, we think that's a, a marvelous way of beginning to think about how we should conduct ourselves and what kinds of policies we should be instituting, that, that the most important considerations are those that affect the seventh generation. What can healthcare providers and patients learn from the report? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that that there's an immediate application for healthcare providers. Um, in the previous Lancet series, which I mentioned, um, we published a paper on um, the what providers could do and and what the options were for care. And since coming to GW, we focused much more intensively on that through the Stop Obesity Alliance, which I inherited uh, as when I when I came. And um, in that activity, we focused on what primary care physicians can do about obesity. The most important thing is to recognize the bias that exists around patients with obesity. And part of that has to do with people first language, which I just used. So we talk about people with obesity, not obese people, um, because obese people is an identity and perpetuates the the notion that they're responsible for their disease. Uh, whereas I, I have yet to meet anybody with obesity who uh, decided that they would become that they would develop obesity. Uh, it's it's a consequence of the way we live and the and the food supply. So that. That's number one, recognizing the stigma and bias that exists with obesity. And I think step one is overcoming that and recognizing that this is a disease. But step two is how do you open that conversation? Um, because it is a delicate kind of conversation. People with obesity recognize they have obesity. They don't need their providers to tell them that, uh, which is what many providers end up doing. They also know that uh, if they ate 
better and were more physically active, they would lose weight. They don't need to hear that again from a provider. But the the whole paradigm of care um, needs to be joint decision-making, um, and that too often is neglected, uh, that providers end up telling patients with obesity what they think they ought to do rather than understanding uh, – from the patient's point of view, what they think is possible. So shared decision-making is a, 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 the critical piece of, of what people can do and, and letting people with obesity determine what it is that they think they can change. And the provider's role is uh, to reinforce that. Uh, I think the other thing that we need to do is to make people with obesity much more comfortable in our waiting rooms and, and examining rooms um, so that uh, chairs that are easy to get in and out of, scales that are partitioned so that that a patient's weight is not announced publicly to the entire waiting room, uh, gowns that fit, um, examining tables that are accessible. Uh, those kinds of, of accommodations are essential to uh, for people with obesity. And then uh, – I think the other piece, we've worked on a number of these pieces. So another piece, in, in addition to how to open the conversation with uh, with patients about obesity, uh, such as, uh, is it okay if we talk about your weight um, so mm-hmm. that you're really asking permission from the patient about whether this is something they want to talk about? One of the areas that we've worked in is um, trying to understand what providers need to know. And and it turns out that primary care docs, who are the people that are the front line in, in obesity, know very little about obesity. Um, they, about less than half, know what the physical activity recommendations are for anybody. And less than a third know that almost any diet will work for people with obesity. Uh, so recognizing that, we designed a series of competencies and brought together 14 different organizations to begin to think about what are the characteristics that people who provide care for obesity need to have? What what are the criteria? What are the competencies that they need to have? And we were able to get an agreement of these 14 different organizations on what those competencies should be. And now we're in the process of, of curating those, looking at how they're beginning to be implemented and uh, the extent to which they're incorporated in the uh, uh, licensure uh, or certification exams. Because if they're there, then they're going to be learned. Um, The second thing that we've done is to um, begin to work on what constitutes a standard of care for obesity. So that follows directly on the competencies. Uh, If a person knows what they need to do, then uh, delivering those, uh, those strategies is part of the standard of care. And ultimately what we're about is um, developing a, um, a benefit package, an ideal benefit package for obesity. We recently completed a study that looked at insurance rates uh, in Medicaid and state employee programs for um, obesity care, and they were all over the maps, and and, and some of them were just uh, unmeetable. So that, for example, uh, in order to qualify for bariatric surgery in one state, a patient had to lose 15% of their body weight. Oh and there's no way to do that. And they couldn't. And furthermore, if they couldn't use, if they had used drugs to achieve that weight loss, they were ineligible for surgery. I mean, it's just oh, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a- another state had uh, just one visit for nutrition counseling. I mean, for a chronic disease like obesity, it's just really yeah. ridiculous. I think it's uh, really sad that a few months back, um, when I was diagnosed with prediabetes and I went to see the nutritionist, the first thing out of the nutritionist's mouth was, you're lucky that 
they let you that your health insurance includes uh, seeing a nutritionist. And I was like, doesn't anybody? Everybody? <laughs> yeah, you would think that would qualify anyone. Yeah. The answer is no. <laughs> yes, that's what I found out. <laughs> yes. And uh, that is all too common. And one of the things that we're working on here at the Integrative Medicine Program is we're trying to train primary care physicians and the, the first line of defense in nutrition. So they can at least start that discussion. Um, and then hopefully they're already developing a relationship with the patient like you're describing, and they can help guide them and serve as a resource if maybe they can't get to see a nutritionist because their insurance doesn't cover it. Right. So shared decision-making is at the heart of this. And, and that's, I think, um, novel to many practitioners. Absolutely. Uh, we always tell our students, it's um, you are the co-pilot. Your patient is in the driver's seat. You're not going to make them do anything. You are just there to, to help guide them and serve as a resource. So you mentioned some research that your group did recently. I believe it was published in Obesity that examined changes in the coverage for adult obesity treatment services in Medicaid and state employee health insurance programs. Are we moving in the right direction? We were fortunate in, in this study to have a previous study which looked at these state benefit plans. And so the answer is yes, these are progressing. There's more coverage for more types of, of interventions. Um, bariatric surgery is at a very high level. Um, uh, counseling has increased, but the gap is in the uh, reimbursement for medications. Um, and, and those have increased slightly, but they're for um, pretty ineffective, uh, uh, the least effective medications. Um, what we did uh, was to compare the state employee health plans and the benefits there with the Medicaid packages to just look to see whether they were aligned, and they're not. Uh, and uh, the coverage is quite spotty and erratic and not consistent across states. So that, for example, in the states which have the highest obesity rates, there's no assurance that they have the best coverage. Um, so there's this disconnect between the, the burden of disease and the capacity to treat the other problem is that I, I don't think that patients or providers are necessarily aware of what benefits exist. And we know from other studies that when a benefit for obesity care exists, it's not heavily utilized. We know that from Medicare. We know that actually the first study of that was in uh, North Carolina when Blue Cross Blue Shield um, announced that they would reimburse care in the early 2000s, about 2004, 2005. And this was a benefit that just was there but wasn't used. And that's characterized the, the obesity care benefits. So in addition to not knowing what they are and having this diversity of care, providers and patients don't know what they are. So they can't take advantage of what limited uh, resources there are, even uh, if they know about them. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it's going to be a challenge for providers to really understand what care is available. Um, but is there something you can recommend that maybe providers can do to help move the needle on obesity care. Uh, you have a patient in your office and you want to help them, but you maybe don't know what their insurance company is, what their coverage is. How would you recommend them approaching that? Well, I think they, their office staff has to become familiar with the, what the benefits are. Um, and uh, even more important than that, I think that, that providers need to overcome the biases and stigma that they have to even begin to open the conversation about obesity. We know that that even when a patient with obesity is seen by a provider, the provider doesn't necessarily list obesity as a as a disease or on the on the problem list. So if it's not listed on the problem list, 
nothing's going to happen. Even when it's listed on the problem list, even if the provider recognizes that obesity exists, they don't follow, they don't book a follow up appointment. So how can you not how can you care for somebody if you're not following them up? And I, I think if you compare the treatment of obesity to the treatment of diabetes or uh, cardiovascular disease, any other dis- chronic disease, obesity is woefully underserved. That um, we have these benefits and strategies and packages that we de- we devote to these other chronic diseases, but obesity, which is the driver of cardiovascular disease, the driver of diabetes, and increasingly the driver of cancers, is not addressed. Absolutely. Hopefully we are, are doing our little part here at GW with Integrative Medicine and you at the Redstone Center. Um, I think that's all the time we have for now. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Dietz. My pleasure. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frame. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.